Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Our series begins today in Matthew chapter 12. If you want to find that in your copy of Scripture, let me ask you this question. Who is Jesus? When Pastor Tad baptizes folks here at our church, he asks that question of those candidates that are about to be baptized. And of course, we know their answer prior to them being baptized. We've had that conversation with them about Jesus being the one who redeems and the one who saves. That question, who is Jesus, is a tremendously important one. In evangelism strategies that have been used over the years, some of those evangelism strategies begin or continue with the simple question to a lost person, who is Jesus? See, Jesus is someone that is known. He's someone that is familiar even to those that aren't followers of Christ. Uh, Even in other religious systems, Jesus is a character or has a place or a role to play. In Islam, for example, Jesus is another prophet of Allah. In Hinduism, Jesus is another deity among the thousands or millions of deities that Hindus have, another one to accept. In Buddhism, Jesus is another type of example of Buddha who presents a way to experience nirvana. In in contemporary culture, Jesus is a byword and a name that is used in blasphemous phrases over and over again in movies and television and even in our own circles with people who would take our Lord's name in vain. In and around us, there are all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is and who Jesus might be. He's someone to emulate. He's a good teacher. We could go all the way back to the days of our founding and see Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson, though he was not a believer in the sense of our understanding of Christianity, (coughs) excuse me, I'm fighting a summer cold. So I would appreciate your prayers for me as I speak three times. You're getting the best of my voice. I'm not sure what will be left for the 11 o'clock service. Maybe they're happy about that. Maybe it'll have to be a shorter sermon. We could go back to Jefferson, where Jefferson wanted to emulate Jesus as a loving and kind teacher and servant. But Jefferson excluded much of Jesus' works and many of his words in the Bible that he put together that just simply kept what Jefferson wanted to read and wanted to see. Who is Jesus? And many of us, as followers of Christ, those who've already made a decision to follow him, we have our own preconceived ideas of who Jesus is. And some of those are absolutely accurate. But what I want us to do in the course of our 12 weeks through the summer is I want us to look at how Jesus interacted with individuals throughout the gospel accounts. And I want us to do that because I want some of our preconceived notions to maybe be challenged a little bit. I want us not to see Jesus for who we thought he is. I want us to see Jesus for who the text says that he is. I want us to understand that as we explore what the Bible says about Jesus' encounters, there are a couple things that take place. First, we need to see Jesus as the Bible reveals him to be. And second, I want us to notice, this is beautiful, how accessible Jesus is. He's not some faraway God 
who can't be known, can't be understood, and can't be related to. In a wonderful book that I would commend to you by Dane Ortland, entitled Gentle and Lowly, he writes, Our natural intuition can only give us a God that is like us. The God revealed in Scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startles us with one whose infinite uh, whose infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. See, the, the picture we're going to see of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 and in these other encounters is startling. It's refreshing. Jesus is one who challenges, but he also comforts. He's one who rebukes, but he also rescues. He's one who corrects, but he also restores. Where we find this text is in several paragraph encounters of Jesus interacting with some people that need to see him in a new light or meet him altogether. Matthew chapter 12 is found in a section of the book of Matthew. And Matthew is one of my favorite books. It's, it's hard for me to say what is my favorite book of the Bible. We just went through First Timothy and I've grown to really love that pastoral epistle. But in all honesty, I've always had an affinity for the gospel of Matthew. And in some studies I did through seminary, I came to just love how Matthew constructed his gospel. He tells us the narrative of who Jesus is, but he does so and organizes his gospel thematically. If you look in Matthew chapter 10, for example, you have this discourse where Jesus is commissioning his followers to go out and be witnesses. It's sending them out. And he gives them all sort of instruction about what it means to be sent out and who they're going to be sent to. They're sent to the people of Israel. They're sent to take the message of Messiah, the message of hope and the gospel, to those in the communities in which they grew up and lived and to those in which Jesus would minister. And then what Matthew does is in chapters 11 and 12, he shares story after story or incident after incident how when the message of the gospel went to the people of Israel, they rejected it. Or how when Jesus came to the people of Israel, the people of Israel rejected him. In other words, what Matthew does in chapters 11 and 12 is he shows us the unbelief of the people who should have believed without any question or any uncertainty because their Old Testament pointed to the Messiah. And now the Messiah was there present in their midst, not only teaching them what they needed to know, but showing them through his works that he was worthy of being followed. So Matthew 12 was found in a section of the Gospel of Matthew where the people of Israel were rejecting the Messiah. So pick up with me, if you will, in chapter 11, verse 28. We'll begin there because it makes a connection. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Immediately after this, or at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields. On the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry, and he began to pluck, they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he, he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, or for those who were with him? but only for the priests. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 
And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, same day, same set of events. He went on from there and went into their synagogue on the Sabbath day. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, the Pharisees and religious leaders, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. He offers several observations about Jesus from these several paragraphs in Matthew chapter 12. And with each observation, I would like to offer you an application, something that we can take away and work with as followers of Jesus in light of what we discover about Jesus. The first observation is this. Jesus does not abide by our rules. In this little incident, what happened is Jesus was taking a walk through a grain field on one Sabbath morning, Sabbath afternoon, not sure the exact time frame. And the disciples that were with him were hungry. In fact, let me commend something to you. I I thought about using this a little more in this series, and I may reference it several times. A couple years back, Dr. Mike Matheny recommended that we watch the television show, The Chosen, which is a beautiful depiction of Jesus' interaction as Messiah, how he chose the disciples. And I don't agree with every aspect of it, but for the scripture television that I've watched over the years, it's about as close as you can get to the text and to the, to the passages of scripture. One of the reasons I think it's fascinating is it gives us this picture of how Jesus might have interacted with his disciples in a true-to-scripture format. And this incident is depicted in one of those episodes where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath day. And the disciples were hungry. You can imagine traveling with an itinerant preacher and not having a pantry that you can take with you, not being stocked with a cooler that you carry, not having the opportunity to stop by McDonald's or Burger King and get a fast food meal to go. There weren't those opportunities. And with it being on the Sabbath, we know Chick-fil-A would have been closed. Well... Our, 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 our day is Sunday, right? The Sabbath, this would have been a Saturday, so I don't know, Chick-fil-A might have been open. But they didn't have an opportunity to stop and gather food. So what the disciples did is they picked heads of grain off of the stalks uh, and they ate them as they were walking to where they were going, probably on their way specifically to this synagogue. A couple things to note about that. That wasn't stealing. In the Old Testament, there was a provision 
that allowed anyone to take something that was fruit or that was a meal as they were walking through someone's, uh, someone's crops. As long as they didn't take a bucket and take it home with them. You could take what, what you walked past and ate. That was just a part of an agricultural society. So in that sense, it wasn't stealing. Here's something fascinating to think about though. How many times have you walked through the woods or walked through fields? Now, for me, when I was growing up, that's all we ever did. I don't recall on any of those occasions when I went hunting with my dad or when we traipsed to a fishing hole or when we were just playing in the woods. I don't recall a crowd of people walking behind me to see what I was doing. I just don't recall it happening. But Jesus is walking through the grain fields on a Sabbath day, evidently with a few Pharisees, somewhere in the vicinity, watching every move he made and essentially witnessing the disciples pick handfuls of grain and eat them, which they said was unlawful. Now, the Sabbath day was a specific provision where the people of Israel were to do no work so that they could devote their attention to worshiping God. That was the point of the Sabbath. What the Pharisees had done is they had added Sabbath laws to make sure that you didn't break God's laws. So the Pharisees made uh, rules against sowing, reaping, gathering, grinding, kneading, and baking bread. They had a set of limitations that basically made it so that if you didn't break their laws, you wouldn't break God's laws. But what did Jesus do? His disciples do? Well, they ate the grains. And when the, the, the Pharisees rather questioned Jesus, he didn't argue with them. He didn't debate them. He just said, haven't you read in the Old Testament when David and his men ate some bread that wasn't for them, it was only for the priest, but yet it provided them nourishment and everybody knew that King David, David was someone to be emulated. Haven't you read, he said, that the priests profane the Sabbath because the priests work on the Sabbath. They offer sacrifices for the worship of God. They're laboring, but they're laboring in the work of worship. Here's, here's the point. Jesus does not abide by our rules for spiritual realities. See, a lot of times we think that if Jesus were to enter into our midst, enter into our church, enter into our standards of relationship, you know what we think? We think that Jesus might act and speak and do like you and I act and speak and do. Folks, Jesus does not abide by our rules. He keeps his Father's rules. He kept his Father's rules perfectly as he walked and talked here in uh, these gospel accounts. But Jesus doesn't fit our idea of what a religious person would be. In fact, I tend to think that if Jesus stepped out of heaven and came to Baptist churches or Methodist churches or Catholic churches or other churches across the Western world and walked into those churches as a normal dressed man, I'm not sure Jesus would be well received if he spoke or if he taught or if he acted. Because here's the reality. When we allow our rules, our preconceived ideas about what church should be, what relationship with God should be, how things should work, when we allow that to dictate and control others, and in particular, in this instance, Jesus himself, Jesus doesn't fit our mold. 
Jesus didn't come to be like us. He came to show us the Father and invite us to be like Him. Folks, He said very clearly, He is Lord of the Sabbath. We don't meet here for us. Do you get that? We don't meet here for, I I mean, we get benefit out of meeting here. Don't get me wrong. It is helpful when, when you bring a sacrifice of praise and an offering of worship. It's helpful when, when we come and participate in the life of the church. And I think this text is going to help some of us immensely before we're done this morning. But we don't come here ultimately for us. We come here because He is Lord of this day. He is Lord of this church. He is the one that is to garner our attention. He is the one to whom we are to focus upon. And when we get it out of kilter, that Jesus is somehow supposed to fit our preconceived notions, we miss who Jesus really is. The application is simply this. Hear what Jesus says so we can follow him. I'll give you a specific overarching application as you work with us through this Jesus Encounter series. I would encourage you, if you don't have a regular Bible reading plan, to read through the Gospels during these months. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Hear what Jesus says. Listen to His words. And don't just listen to them for insight, understanding, knowledge. Hear them so that you can apply them. So that you can follow Him. So that you can put His expectations into practice. Now, if this little paragraph wasn't enough... Jesus went on to continue to challenge those religious leaders that wanted Jesus to conform to their idea of righteousness. So he stepped into their synagogue. And oftentimes Jesus would go into a synagogue and he would be invited to speak or preach. He would be invited to share and he did that. And that challenged them quite, quite uh, uh, significantly over Jesus' ministry. In this particular instance, he stepped into the synagogue and there was a man there with a withered hand. Now, if it's bad enough for the Pharisees to follow Jesus through the grain fields, watching like hawks to see what he did, it's even worse that they challenged him in front of everyone with this man that had a withered hand. No idea if they brought him to the synagogue that day. Have no idea if he showed up of his own accord, hoping somehow to worship and focus his attention on God. Nevertheless, he was used as a pawn in the scheme of the Pharisees and religious leaders. So they presented him before Jesus. And they asked Jesus this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And Jesus responded, as only the all-wise, all-knowing master can How many of you on the Sabbath day, if your sheep falls into a pit, you're going to wait till the Sabbath day ends to go pick that sheep up out of the pit? No, because you recognize that it is gracious and kind to do good for your animals. You're going to reach down even on the Sabbath day and you're going to pick that sheep up out of the pit. So, of course, it is lawful. It is good to do good things on the Sabbath day. And he tells this man to stretch out his hand, and as soon as he stretched it out, his hand is healed. Second observation from this paragraph is this. Jesus does not operate according to our limitations. Do you realize that? See, you and I walk in with challenges. You and I walk in with heartbreaks. You and I walk in with physical limitations. 
Jesus doesn't have any of those. Not certainly to any extent. Certainly he was touched by them. He, was, he, he suffered pain. He suffered difficulty. He suffered trial. But those things did not overcome him because he's God in human flesh. When that man was there with a withered hand, folks, I can't do anything about that. We have folks this week that are going through significant health challenges. Some that are waiting on surgery, some that need surgery, some that have had surgery. And if it were in my power to help and to heal in a way that that would solve someone's physical need, you know where I would be? I would be in the hospital ER. And and I would be sending people home minute by minute, hour by hour, healing them. But I'm not able to do that. Neither are you. Some of you wish that God would step in and intervene and heal you of your ailment and sickness and illness. And I just want to remind you that you can keep praying for that because Jesus doesn't abide by our limitations. I can't solve cancer. I can't fix a knee that needs to be restored. I can't help a person's spine. I can't solve a person's break. But Jesus doesn't operate according to our limitations. Now, all too often what we do is we let our faith, or lack thereof, be directed by what we can see, what we have experienced, what we feel, What's going on on the inside? And I just want to remind you, Jesus does not abide by our limitations. The application is simply this. Watch what he does so that you can believe him. Here's one of the reasons why this matters so much. Folks, we have such a tendency as Christians living in a 21st century for us to build our faith and our Christian experience around what we see and what we feel and what we know. And so our faith depends on the circumstances that surround us or lack thereof. I just want you to know that the Jesus who walked through the grain fields that day, who walked into the synagogue that day, is the same Jesus that you have a relationship with in this moment in this worship service. He hasn't changed. And what we need to know is that our faith should not depend merely on what we see and experience. It has to depend on what the Bible says about Jesus. He doesn't abide by our limitations. So when we see him heal, we need to believe that he can heal. When we see him intervene miraculously, and we're going to see that over and over again, when you read that, when you hear that, then that is the one to whom you pray. His greatness and His majesty and His goodness and His ability and His interventions are more than we could ever dream. So we need to believe Him. We need to take Him at His word. We need to trust that He is able. Some of you pray and you pray faithfully, but you don't pray with faith. Don't pray believing that God will do what you're asking Him to do. Maybe because you're not sure he really wants to. Or maybe because you're not really sure he's able to. It's up to God whether he does what we ask him to do. But please don't let the lack of faith, don't let your unbelief in what he's able to do be the cause of him not intervening in your prayers. Believe that he can. Watch what he does. And when you go to Jesus in prayer, the next time today, go to him with this story of the man with the withered hand. 
So Jesus, this is who you were 2,000 years ago. This is who you are today. And I'm bringing you whatever situation it is. I am trusting it to you. You are the one who is able. Folks, we don't pray to a God who is unable. We pray to a God who is able. While we can't, he is able and he can. i give you that third little paragraph here. Jesus, aware of what the Pharisees were doing. I mean, how bad do you have to be to watch him like a hawk, to see him eat grain heads, right? To, to challenge him in the synagogue and him show you up, him heal a man. I mean, his hands withered. It's, it's, it's like you could see the healing take place in that moment. Everybody could. Challenge, be challenged. Watch Jesus do this good thing. You know what the Pharisees went off and did? Asked how they could follow him. No, asked how they could destroy him. What Matthew's doing in this section is he's setting up what's going to take place later on in the book of Matthew. He's showing that Jesus' miracles and his grace and his teaching and his intervention were rejected over and over again by the religious leaders because that's going to lead into Jesus' death and resurrection. The whole point of Jesus' coming wasn't for him to be accepted by his miracles. It's for him to be rejected and die on a cross so that you and I could experience salvation. The Pharisees and the religious leaders there in that moment, they rejected him. And because they rejected him, Jesus knew what was going on. Notice what it says. Jesus, aware of this, he withdrew. He didn't stand to fight. And in that moment, he didn't argue with them. He didn't challenge them. Notice what it says. Many followed him and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Let me say this. Here's the third observation. Jesus does not pursue our ambitions. If he were like us in what we desired, he might have stood there and argued and debated with those religious leaders in that moment. And then when he did withdraw, when he did heal all of those people who came to him after watching that miracle there in the synagogue, he healed them. And you know what he said? Don't tell anyone about it. Hold on a second. Why would Jesus say not to tell others about him? When today, 2,000 years later, I would do anything if I could get you to tell everybody you know about the Jesus that has saved you. That's what we're supposed to do. Even Jesus gave a commission where that's what we're supposed to do. I think there are a couple reasons. I think one reason is Jesus doesn't have our ambitions. See, Jesus wasn't trying to establish a followership. He wasn't trying to get a bunch of people behind him. He wasn't raising up a platform. He wasn't trying to build a mega church. He wasn't trying to build this kind of guru sense of following. That wasn't what he was trying to do. He was trying to show people that he was the Messiah who came to save them. And ultimately his purpose did not end with healing someone with a withered hand or telling someone how to have help. His purpose was to go to the cross. To be Savior and Redeemer and Forgiver and the one who would be resurrected from the dead. I think a second reason is there because the Jews had a false idea of what the Messiah was or or a misconstrued idea. They thought the Messiah was a political Savior. Someone who was going to overthrow Rome. Someone who was going to set up an earthly kingdom. And so Jesus didn't want people following him with wrong motivations. 
So he said, don't go tell everybody about me because he doesn't have our ambitions. The application here is watch or know who Jesus is. Know who he is so we can love him. So who is Jesus in this text? Pick up this prophecy that Isaiah gave in Isaiah 42, what we read at the beginning of our sermon or service, and what's quoted here. As Matthew says it's fulfilled, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This is supposed to be a statement about the people of Israel as God's servants declaring justice. But Matthew takes this prophecy in Isaiah 42 and, and basically makes it about the Messiah, about Jesus himself, the one who came. To do what? To proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Notice verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Folks, he doesn't have ambitions like we do. When he came, he wasn't trying to draw a following. It doesn't mean he wasn't going to be vocal or public. It just simply means that Jesus was not going to act like a street crier. He was not going to act like someone who was trying to draw a crowd for his own popularity and his own self-centered or self-absorbed glory's sake. The reason we glorify Jesus appropriately, folks, is because he deserves it. But it's he didn't come here as he could to wear a heavenly crown showing all of his glory and telling everybody follow me bow before me and worship me he came to be our savior not just to be our king he doesn't want us to follow him based on his greatness and his majesty he wants us to follow him based on our need to be forgiven and redeemed and so he came to be savior and notice this little phrase a bruised reed he will not break In a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Folks, what is our world crying out for? Justice. Over and over again, we want justice. We want righteousness. You know the only place they're going to find justice, true justice, is in Jesus. And the misconceived notions about who Jesus is, they're not going to find in any other place. Who does Jesus reveal himself to be in this text? Someone who is kind and gentle and compassionate. If you go all the way back to chapter 11, Jesus said, self-identification, I am gentle. I'm lowly in heart is what Jesus said. And then this phrase comes out in the very next chapter, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. What kind of reed, what kind of grass is he talking about? Well, there are different kinds of reeds and grasses. I think the one that is imaged here is what would be the Arundodonax, which is a type of cane. And cane are are stem-type grasses, but as we think of cane, cane is very stiff, and it's very hardy, and it's very unbreakable. But the particular type of cane that I think uh, Isaiah had in mind here is a type that grows about 12 feet high, but it is very fragile. It's a reed that can blow over in the wind. And because of its flexibility, the wind can blow it over and lay it down flat, but it'll pop right back up. But because of its flexibility, it is intensely fragile. It is easily broken and easily damaged, easily bruised. Here's what the text says about Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. Jesus didn't come 
to break us. See, the, the imagery is that we are fragile and bruised reeds. The song we sang earlier, Lord, I Need You. How many of you have gone through or are going through a time where you increasingly feel your weakness, your lack, you're not enough, you, you don't have it today, but if you're honest, you didn't have it yesterday or the week before that, and you wonder, what is Jesus' perception of you? I just want to tell you, a bruised reed, he will not break. Jesus came to be a gentle Savior to come alongside those of us that are fragile. A smoldering wick he will not put out. Uh, the linen that was used in lamps to, to serve as the, the, the function of lighting. A smoldering wick, one that was about to go out. How many of you have ever felt like your light is almost extinguished? Maybe some of you today came, <clears throat> came in a worship service and you feel like your strength is almost done. You don't have anything more. You don't have anything left. I want to tell you something about Jesus. He didn't come to snuff out what you have left. He accepts you for what lack you bring, for what bruises you carry into this worship service, for what little spark, if it's only a little spark, if it's only smoke that's left, he cares for you exactly where you are. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, what is weaker than the bruised reed or the smoking flax? They're like starlings or birds, frightened at every passerby. A little feel for, feel for a flock. If temptation comes, they're taken like birds in a snare. If trial threatens, they're ready to faint. Their frail skiff is tossed up and down by every wave. They are drifted along like a seabird on the crest of the billows. Weak things, without strength, without wisdom, without foresight. Folks, that's us. Yet weak as they are, because they are so weak, they have this promise made specially to them. Herein is grace and graciousness. Herein is love and loving kindness. How it opens us to the compassion of Jesus. So gentle, tender, considerate. We need never shrink back from His touch. We need never fear a harsh word from him, though he might well chide us for our weakness. He rebuketh not. Bruised reeds shall have no blows from him, and the smoking flax no damping frowns. What did you bring into the worship service today? Strength? Provision? Help? Self-security? Religious predilections? Rules? Ideas, standards, whatever it is you brought in. I'll tell you, Jesus is here as a gentle, kind, gracious, compassionate Savior. Not to leave you more broken, but to give you help. Not to snuff out what little you brought in, but to flame what little you brought in with His own grace and with His own strength and with His own compassion give you a picture of what that looks like for those of us that are believers or unbelievers. Years ago, Fanny Crosby, beautiful hymn writer, wrote more than a thousand hymns. She was blind, by the way, writing hymns, depicting who Jesus was. She went to a prison, and she was a part of a team that was leading in some singing and preaching in a prison. 
While she walked through the crowd of those prisoners, she heard one prisoner say this, cry this out, good Lord, do not pass me by. And she heard that and it, it, just, it just reflected in her heart and she went back and told someone about it and, and that someone knew she was a hymn writer and he said to her, why don't you write a hymn? So she penned these words. She said, pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Maybe you came here this morning with an axe to grind and a frustration to share. Maybe you came here more like the Pharisees in their stories than you did like anyone else. I just want to remind you that this text was written and placed at a particular point in scriptural history to let us know that the gentle Savior came not just for the broken, not just for the outcast. He did, and we'll talk about that in just a second. He came for the religious. He came for the Pharisees. He came for the religious leaders. Paul was a Pharisee. The priests in the book of Acts, they received this gentle Savior at some point in their future. Maybe you came here this morning with a withered hand. There, there is a health issue that is going on inside of you. There is a challenge that you're facing physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. It is beyond you. I just want you to know... Jesus, the gentle Savior, is here to walk with you through that. Maybe He heals. Maybe He takes it away. Maybe He removes it from your midst. Maybe He doesn't. But if He doesn't, He'll walk with you in care and compassion as long as you have it. Maybe you came here with a broken heart or a broken life. Maybe you feel bruised. Maybe you feel overcome and overwhelmed. Maybe you've never met Jesus in the first place. Why don't you cry out like that hymn tells us, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. I want to tell you something. If that's the heart that we come to Jesus with, He will not pass us by. Ask Him for help. Stand with me if you will. Lord, we come to You. We come to You realizing that we need You. All too often, all too often, we're much more like the Pharisees and the religious leaders than we'd like to admit. We want you to fit into our preconceived notions. In truth, Lord, we're like those bruised reeds. We're like those smoldering wicks. We're like those men and women with withered hands and broken bodies. Lord Jesus, in this moment, We come to you in need. We ask you not to pass us by. We ask you to help us. Father, if there's one in this room that has not met you as Savior, I pray, Lord, for their salvation. I know there are many in this room that need your help and your gentle touch. I pray that today would be a day they sense you and experience you in a way that is loving and helpful, redemptive and strengthening. Help us to know you, Jesus, the gentle and lowly, the accessible and the real, the true and the one who loves us in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.